you Yeah, yo There whenever it matters and even more when you feel like it doesn't Protect you so you never feel like you wasn't Know I'm right alongside you, here by that I'm behind you But always got you, end the discussion, nothing means more First one to offer his shoulders for what you preach for Thought I saw the eyes of the world until I seen yours And know that I ain't see a better view yet I'm with whatever, so don't ever you fret Know that you covered, not a hurdle or a heartbreak To change what a partake Cause none of them won't ever get comfortable in your walkway My job is to aware you, fully loaded Prepare you for all of the above that I'm never letting get near you. But still, I know, give you every advantage I found. Couldn't find a better fit for them, along with my crown. And since the baton was passed, hopping down, cause feeling's not an option, and dad is not a noun, not at all. Welcome, welcome to another episode of Dad Is Not A Now. My name is Ishmael, changing the narrative for men of color and fatherhood, but also changing the narrative about the things I care about. And today what I care about is what are we doing for fathers? Uh, my special guest, I'm truly honored and humbled to have him on with me, Dr. Ron Missy. How you doing, sir? I'm well. Thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you. And um, before we get into it, tell the people who do not know you, I know you, for like the, the young generation who do not know you, tell the people who are you? Who who is Dr. Mincy? So uh, I am a professor of social welfare policy and practice. I'm an endowed chair at Columbia University School of Social Work. I've been working in the field of fatherhood for almost 30 years. Uh, I was previously um, at the Ford Foundation uh, funding work in this area. And before that, I was a researcher at the Urban Institute who did, who did work on very early work around black men and boys. And I've been part of uh, um, work in this area for a very, very long time and have been trying to, uh, again, build, as we've discussed, build the infrastructure around uh, work that funds uh, fatherhood policy, practice, and research. Um, that's that's what I've done. And, and thank you for- uh, and, uh, Sorry, let me- no. I am. Um, I've been married for 46 years uh, to my wife. I'm the uh, father of two sons. I only had brothers as uh, when I was growing up, and so uh, I never thought it unusual to focus on men and focus on boys because I know, having growing up with two brothers and raised by a single mom, that um, you know, uh, my, my mantra is to think about: listen, some men have challenges sometimes. But all men will eventually have challenges, and we need to care for them. We need to take care of them, and uh, and so my work has been about that. It was quite natural in uh, uh, being raised by two brothers and then trying to raise two sons of my own uh, to focus on how does one do that and how does one do that effectively. And and two grandsons, it's just a whole bit. I only have one daughter, one daughter in my whole world, uh, and. And I'm, I'm getting no, to know more about girls and their issues as well, but I've been focusing on men forever. And that's the important thing is the community. But also, uh, one question I always ask my guests, how's your heart? The reason why I ask that key question is I want us as men to be okay to be vulnerable, to share our stories, you know? Um, so how's your heart at this oh, moment? My heart, is, my heart is great. As, as a, you know, I, I am privileged, I'm blessed, and I know it. You know, uh, I'm, you know, I have uh, children who love me. I have a wife who grown up, you know, we were kids together and we're still desperately in love. Um, I'm, I'm blessed. I have a God who I serve, a God who loves me. My head is on straight. Uh, and so 
I'm, I'm, I'm privileged. I've never been unemployed. Let me put it that way. So um, I'm blessed, but uh, I learned from my mom to him to whom much is given, much is expected. And so uh, that I've been able to make some contributions to this field uh, makes my heart well as well. And just talk about your life growing up, you know, you know, with your father, your mother. How was life as a young, a young messy? Well, um, so uh, it was it was difficult. I was the middle child. Um, I grew up in in, uh, in the Patterson housing projects in the 1950s. Uh, and I was mentioning um, the Patterson projects were a consolation prize for black DIs who fought in World War Two in Korea uh, because. Uh, when when the GIs came home from those wars, they were rewarded by uh, federal grants to promote their education. We, in fact, created the American middle class through the GI Bill. Uh, we we um, uh, provided low-cost education to GIs who returned home and low-cost cost housing. But uh, monies for the financing for that housing was funneled through the private housing market. Real estate agents discriminated against black men. So I grew up in a housing project where the son and daughter of the white GIs who fought alongside my father, they grew up in, in Hampton. Uh, you know, uh, they grew up in Long Island. They bought their own homes. Their, their, their real estate values of their homes grew over time. And as a result, when their kids, when we grew up, uh, they had money to pay for their own education. I had to get a college loan. So so those things made a difference. And as a result, uh, my family moved into, uh, I was born in the Patterson Housing Projects in 1952. Uh, and uh, for most uh, people within, say, 10 or 15 years, by the time I was a teenager, um, uh, housing, public housing in the United States is a, a low income is a program targeted at the median income in the United States. It is not a poverty program. And so at the time, most of those were two parent families. By the time I became a teenager, most of that housing was uh, was was available to single mother households. Uh, and as a result, I grew up without my dad. Uh, I had I experienced a lot of what my colleague calls father hunger as a consequence of that. And I always wanted to understand why did black men desert their families? Um, but uh, when I was a teenager, I worked in the family court um, and uh, I had the strange occurrence. My job was to uh, write up the child support orders of men who had been uh, in the courtroom on that day uh, and then uh, and file them away. And one day it occurred to me that my mother's case was in those files. Wow. And so I snuck there as if I were committing a crime. And I looked up my mother's file and I read my family history in a two inch thick legal uh, file. Uh, uh, there I understood uh, what happened more about my mother and father than I ever knew before. And, and the whole contingencies, including what the child support system did to them. And uh, at the tender age of 19 years old, I said, I'm going to fix this in my naivete. Uh, and um, I devoted my rest of the life trying to honor that promise. And you have almost 30 years of just amazing work. And it's crazy that no one even speaks your name when you talk about like the fatherhood movement. That's okay. They, they, That's fine. It's okay. like, uh, it, it, it's okay. Uh, you know, I, I, I've been a funder in the area and, and I just know that um, one of the challenges of work in any area, in any area is that people's egos often stand in the way. You know, yeah. they, they have their mission, they focus on the, the target population, but they got to get what's needed for themselves. 
uh, I'm not worried about that. What I want to make sure is that um, uh, I've been working for 30 years in this area. And my objective has always been to make sure that more African-American children grow up with the support of strong mothers and strong fathers. Uh, and, and if that gets done, I will be, uh, I will be, I will be thrilled. And, and whether or not anyone attributes it to me is, is irrelevant. But after you read that file, did you have that conversation with your mom or you just kept it to yourself? Uh, um, you know, uh, I couldn't have the conversation with my mother. Um, I recall, and I'm telling you the, the truth. Um, you know, I was a middle child. And as a consequence, um, I observed what it was to be a single mother. I observed my I was the one who walked with her from the grocery store, bringing the, bringing the groceries home. I was the one who, when my younger brother hung out all night, uh, my mother's words to me were, Ron, go get Kenny. Uh, so I, I, I witnessed, I observed what it was, and it was, it was very difficult. Uh, and I observed the, the hardship that she experienced as a consequence of having to raise three boys in a housing project that was full of, uh, you know, all sorts of challenges. Um, and so uh, when, when as, as I matured, I understood that end of it, uh, and I wanted to better understand what it was about. But I also remember a particular incident. Um, my mother used to take and drop us off at the barbershop uh, and, in order to get our hair, hair cut. And I must have been around 18 years old. And, uh, you know, barbershops at the time and perhaps now, who knows, uh, were not places that women would hang out. They'd drop her kids off. And I remember this, the banter that went on in the barbershop. I am now almost 70 years old. I was eight at the time. And this guy was in the barbershop and he said, every time I go into a schoolyard, I put my hand in my pocket and take some pennies and I throw them over the fence because I never know how many children on the other side of that fence were mine. Wow. And I swear it. And I understood that I could not go home and ask my mother, what did he mean? And so, no, I couldn't ask my mother that. And I looked to other resources to try to figure out. But, you know, my life mission was about who does that? As my granddaughter says, who does that? You know, I wanted to understand what that meant. And so um, I've been privileged to try to. And and what I understand is uh, people do that who. Who, who may have had traumatic family experiences of, of their own. And so I've come to the place of understanding uh, uh, the circumstances that, that, that conspire, such as men, Black men in particular, have not been able to hang in there and support their families, and some of them uh, could do better. Um, and so my whole purpose has been to make sure that uh, Black children in subsequent generations you know, don't have to deal with that or have to deal with it less. Uh, and I'm really encouraged by what is happening in the trends among black men and black children and black families, although we got a hell of a lot of work to do. And like what we were talking before we recorded the conversation, we talk about infrastructure, right? Like there wasn't any infrastructure for your father or fathers. Uh, from what from what your research and your work, your work over time, talk about that importance of having that infrastructure because as men, like society, we are the patriarch. We put everything on our back. So mm-hmm. just talk about that importance of that. Of that. Well, first of all, I, I don't. A black men, in some ways, are no different than other men. They tend not to talk about their challenges. I mean, we are woefully uh, uh, um, uh, uh, 
less likely than women to uh, seek health care. Uh, our, 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 our health status is, is uh, you know, the, the incidence of prostate cancer, for example, among men your age, to say nothing of my age, is, ri- is rising quite rapidly. And as a consequence, and why is that? Because um, there is not information, there is not, there's a lot of fear and ignorance about uh, these sorts of challenges. And that, uh, um, uh, it, it sort of is evidence of the lack of infrastructure around these kinds of things. In the area of fatherhood, um, you know, think of the, pro- the challenges about which we've gotten better over time. First of all, there was very little research on how to, um, help fathers uh, uh, learn how to manage, first of all, the the challenges they have with the mothers of their children. There was very little um, uh, evidence-based practice around these sorts of things. Uh, uh, And we haven't, and when there was uh, research in this area, whether it was the basic research that describes the nature of the problem or uh, research that, um, that tries to figure out how to Engage fathers in initiatives to help them deal with their uh, with their Ill, with their issues with respect to the mothers of their children and their children. Um, there was very little research, uh, and so around uh, in the early 1990s, public funding for all sorts of social challenges began to uh, require, and private funding as well. That it's not enough for you to tell us how many people you serve. What we want to know is how effective is the service that you provide? And so in the absence of evidence-based practice, um, there, it, there has been difficulty on the part of organizations that serve fathers raising funds for what they do. And what I tried to do earlier in my career is to create the infrastructure that might provide that evidence-based practice. Working with community-based programs, um, uh, identifying practitioners in the field who were sort of leaders and working in the area and trying to create a process by which um, uh, the foundation where I work could leverage federal funds that were d- working toward uh, helping fathers establish paternity for their children, um, become engaged in their children's lives. If they had difficulty finding employment, doing so. If they had difficulty paying their child support orders to get help understanding what that world was all, all about so that we could, through research, policy, and practice, demonstrate the impact or lack thereof that these programs were having, learn how to do that work better, uh, and, and, and begin to establish an infrastructure for doing that. And uh, uh, we've had some successes and some failures in that effort, but at least there are now programs all around the country doing this work, um, and we're getting better at it. And there are also uh, a few... Um, federally funded fatherhood initiatives that is beginning to build the infrastructure that would support subsequent works in the, in the future. So, uh, and, and we know we have now, um, one of the uh, projects that was funded uh, as a consequence of this effort is a study called the Fragile Families and Child Wellbeing Survey. Uh, I won't apologize for that name. It had a context at the time. What do you do with something? You know, I'm old school. Uh, when uh, when I used to get a, a package showed up at my house and it was had glass in it, it said Fag- fragile, handle right. care, right? Yeah. That's what that meant. Yeah. Uh, and so what we tried, we have been following children from birth until 22 years old. And we are understanding as a consequence of that study, um, uh, how the capacities of parents, both mothers and fathers 
impact the development of children from zero to 22. And when we know now a lot of things about child development, particularly children who are uh, children, adolescents, and now young adults who grow up without their fathers, what that means in terms of their long-term adolescent to youth development. And right. that has uh, become a knowledge base that can inform uh, research, policy and practice and uh and and it's been and now there are you know close to a, a thousand studies over the last 20 some odd years that have been done on the basis of that research uh that work um and uh it has made a very important contribution even to the way we talk about families i mean uh the the, the dialogue about single mothers families we now understand that there are fathers connected to those families that those children were often bought born in the consequence of a romantic relationship, the idea that they were one night stands has been uh, uh, disputed or uh, basically uh, proven to be false in the data. Uh, and that the various challenges that young people, and that's important, um, right. people who don't have the maturity to form families in the first place experience over the first five years of their lives, that's what leads to the separation. So one of the things that we need to do is to better... Um, help young families to learn how to deal with the challenges that they will face as they mature and help them figure out, even if they decide at some point that they no longer can be together, they still have a child in common. Uh, and how can they, uh, after the romance is done, how they can continue to be jointly responsible for um, the care and uh, development of those kids. So that's what my work has been about, trying to build an infrastructure so that long after I'm gone, uh, there are ways that, that in, in which this work can be advanced. And that's the part too, too, is that also people don't also, they talk about the single mother, but the father is like, they're not together, but the father is still involved in their child life. But and, no, and that's, rather, that's and, one and, of the things. So, so I have, I'm working on this paper right now uh, and we're looking at, it's called, um, race, romance, and something else. Uh, but but the idea is that one of the things we know as a consequence of this research is that um, uh, young Black families are more likely to begin with a non-resident father, uh, historically, a non-resident father um, for a whole variety of reasons, in part because uh, African-Americans uh, have tended to live in large metropolitan areas where housing costs are very expensive, and as a result, uh, and um, public housing, uh, um, public housing creates a disincentive for fathers to reside in the home, particularly if they have a criminal justice history. So you put together mass incarceration on the one hand and the provision in, in public housing that um, my wife used to be in this area and she wrote her doctoral dissertation as a consequence of a pillow talk conversation we had about this. It was her job to explain to housing eligibility workers if a mother puts a father who has a criminal justice history on, on her application, throw it at the bottom of the list. And so they often, and so what do they do? They have to, if they're going to move in jointly, they either have to qualify for public housing or they have to get this move into the home where she lives with her mother and father. Neither of those are happening. And so as a result, um, African-American unmarried families tend to be non-resident fathers and resident mothers. And then uh, in a situation, look, if you don't know 
uh, what it is to raise a one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old child and all the challenges that means, uh, you have very little idea of what of what parenting as a young person is all about. You don't wake up in the middle of the night. Uh, it's not your responsibility to feed the child while she's getting something to sleep, etc., uh, etc. Et that you can care as much as you want. If you have not been a part of the situation of bringing a infant into your household and how mom and everyone else in that household has to throw down in order to, to bring that child to a place of their early childhood development and support the mother, you know very little about what it is to be a young parent. And sadly, that is the circumstance of most of, of a preponderance of African-American fathers, particularly if they're young. And as a result, it, it's small wonder that uh, that again that men, young African American men, don't understand what being a father is all about because they haven't witnessed it. At best, they are calling, they're making, um, and so this particular paper looks at um, the likelihood that men by race and ethnicity stay involved with their children over time. And what we've learned is, despite the fact that most African American men uh, younger, less educated African-American men don't live in the house of their child when they're born. They are as likely to visit their child as people who cohabit it. And so um, this idea that African-American children are born without their fathers, that fathers are absent, uh, it is just not supported by the data. So what we have to do is to figure out how in those circumstances uh, can we get to a place where um, we can surround the mother and the father with the resources they need to, if they choose not to stay, first of all, to stay together in the first place, okay? Yep. Uh, and secondly, if they choose that that's not possible, then they can conspire jointly in order to raise the child to which they've given birth. And so um, that's what we need to do. Yeah, and I think that's important too. But how do you feel how people uh, misinterpret your, your data and your research? Because sometimes you 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 hear like these talking points, and it felt like they never they they just took your number and ran with it for their own bias instead of actually reading the whole research. Oh, um, I, I think that's that's a um, what is it? That's an occupational hazard. Uh, you know, people are going to uh, misinterpret stuff. They're going to use information uh, incorrectly, and some of the conclusions that I would. Um, not be uh, pleased to find are true. We need to know the truth, right? Yeah. And so um, I, I, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm in the game. I've, uh, in addition to doing my own research, I've trained at least two generations of researchers relying on this data. Uh, and, and we'll know more as a consequence of what we do. And there are some enemies of the work, so be it. Uh, but hopefully we have inspired and trained and worked with enough people who uh, will you know, we'll stay the course and improve the outcome, the the outcomes of African American families, and uh, and I'm not I'm not mad about them. They got to do what they do. I have to do what I do. And I think that's important as well. Like, can you kind of talk about uh, the struggles for fathers that's in the home, married? Because I think that's a misconception of they're doing good. They're not doing good. They're struggling too. They're, they're struggling too. So um, one of the things that I, I am concerned about is, uh, look, there has not been an increase in the average hourly earnings of most men since, uh, of most men, particularly men without a four-year college degree. There hasn't been an increase in the average hourly earnings of men until only quite recently. 
in the in the in the long economic recovery in the Obama administration. But prior to that, from 1972, right to uh, to the early sort of mid 1990s, the average hourly earnings of men did not rise. Now we live in a society in which um, there is an element of patriarchy that men have inherited, uh, and and as a result. If they often live in households where, uh, the, if they are married, uh, she earns as much or more money than he does. Uh, uh, her employment circumstance is more stable than his. Look at what happened during, you know, right. I've been following. Uh, Mr. Messi, one second. Someone's knocking on the door. Give me one oh. second. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> what you got to do? Hello? All right. We're back. Uh, it's just the maintenance. Wanted to check on something. So we're good. So, um, you know, there have been a lot of uh, studies and reports about the adverse consequences of the COVID crisis on black women, uh, on female, black uh, female workers. Um, because they work in jobs that are uh, in nursing and uh, where they're uh, exposed. And they're also subject to conditions in which um, firms have in, uh, in, in, in services and in the retail area uh, and in occupations where they've been laid off. And as a consequence of that, their earnings have suffered and, and the well-being of their children has suffered as well. Um, less has, attention has been paid to the high mortality rates among black men, many of whom are fathers. Um, when we work, and if we don't have a college education, we're working in deliveries, we're out there in the public in transportation. You know, my brother um, uh, grew up in New York City, uh, and as a result, uh, in our cohort, the safest job you could have was working for the New York City Transit Authority, right? Now, right? And so you got that job, that job stayed with you for your entire career, right? But where were they in COVID? They were riding on the trains uh, uh, in crowded circumstance with people who are unmasked. And as a result, the mortality rates of African-American men are three times the mortality rates of African-American women. And so some of whom, many of whom are married. And so both the stagnancy of men's earnings on the one hand and generally their health circumstances have been real barriers. And moreover, they've had to mature in a context in which, look, um, I have worked on a college campus for the past 20 some odd years. When I look at what has happened to the college campus, there are very few men of color on that campus, right? Uh, uh, college campuses, increasingly, um, educational attainment has risen quite dramatically among women. It has done less so among men. And that is certainly the case among black men and women. And so uh, uh, no, no wonder his earnings are as high as, uh, as uh, are, are equal to hers or hers is higher because the rate of return to a college education has been quite high, even for women, even for black women. And so um, we are raised in a, in a, in a, in a context in which uh, men are supposed to be the head of their families. However, that is not the reality among African-American, many African-American men, and they have had to work their way through that reality. And right. They, I've never been unemployed, so I, that's why I say I'm privileged, right? Yes. But um, they have had to work their way through that reality without a lot of help on what it, all of that means. Uh, what does that mean to my self-esteem if 
I'm told that I'm supposed to be in this position. And when I'm mature and supposed to be fulfilling that role, something else is going on. And so, um, so I have a good uh, friend and colleague, uh, one at uh, NYU and another at uh, GW, that talks about the suicide rates among African-American yeah. boys, men and boys. And some of these mental health consequences are me- things that men have to struggle with. This is why, again, my mantra has, has been the following. Again, um, me- many Black men have challenges, but... For every black man, there will be a point in their lives where they are facing some challenge in yeah. employment, in career, in spirituality, in health, right? And we we are have been in the place where we have not been in the position to help those men get help when they need it, right? And and I think um, our failure to do that and our failure to create an infrastructure wherein that help can be provided is part of the reason why we are in the place where we are as a as as a people. Right. And, and so I think we have to to be sure we have to. There are many and a plethora of challenges that African-American women face. I get that. But they also have brothers, sons, uncles and so on who face similar challenges. And we have not created an infrastructure to support their challenges. I just picked off the fatherhood one and, and tried to work it. Right. And um, and we'll leave it to others to work in other areas. And, that, and and that's that's so true. And then also just talk about how we look at mental health today and drug abuse today than compared 20, 30 years ago. I mean, uh, you know, I, I think this has been a dramatic change, which I have witnessed from, you know, the days in which substance abuse problems were primarily the concerns of, Af- you know, my brother who passed away, uh, uh, not of COVID, but during the COVID crisis, well, I recall when he came out of the military, um, he wanted to be a musician. Uh, he was, That was his heart. He played the trombone. Uh, that's what he wanted to do. But um, he really was reluctant to participate in the environment of musicians, uh, the substance abuse that was all around that. It just was not his thing. He couldn't, he couldn't handle it. And he you know, had to put away his heart's desire because it created an environment that he did not want to be a part of. But there were many, many, many Black musicians who had to deal with that. And part of our substance abuse challenges were grown out of that, and nobody paid attention to it. Fast forward. We get to, uh, you know, uh, the early, you know, 2015 election, uh, and we hear Chris Christie, a Republican governor of the state of New Jersey, who is as right as you as you could imagine, uh, say that substance abuse is a public health crisis. Oh, my God. You know, <laughs> it's, you know, when it was a black person's problem, it was, you know, it was their issue. Now that it, again, it is affecting a larger population. Uh, it is affecting many whites who have health insurance. This is fascinating. One of the reasons for the opioid crisis that occurs in the United States is that many workers who, who, um, who will have an injury, will have an illness, who will go into the hospital. I've been there. Go in the hospital. You have to have you know, surgery. I've had, I'm a basketball, former basketball player. My knees are banged up, right? So I can recall waking up after my first knee surgery and the nurse said, okay, if you feel pain, hit that thing, right? right. And if, and I would, I would, you know, take the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the oxy, right? I would be, and I would be gone for the next, you know, I would take it at 10 o'clock in the morning and I wouldn't come back to my good senses until three o'clock in the afternoon. And that happened to me the first day. It happened to the second day. And I said to the nurse, do I really have to take this stuff? 
And she said, well, no, but, you know, if you paying, uh, I said, I tell you what, get it out of here. Right. Because I right. can't afford to lose a whole day. But right. if you have health insurance, actually, you can afford it. And yep. then you, while you're in the hospital, you take the medication for whatever it takes you to the hospital, boop, you're out of the hospital. Next thing you know, you have a substance abuse problem, right? And so this is what has proliferated the opioid crisis, especially among whites who are employed in the, and you know, not high income whites, but whites who have work a regular job and have health insurance. They have a common medical problem. They go into the hospital, they come out of there with, with and we now have developed a whole medical subsector in the United States to treat people who have health insurance and an opioid addiction, right? Mm -hmm. And so now this problem is quite general in the population, especially among working class white men. It has decreased productivity in the American labor force, and now it is a health crisis. My contention is the fatherhood problem is going a similar way. As the average hourly earnings of men without a high school diploma uh, stagnate over time, and as more of them, uh, whites in particular, uh, have their children as unmarried fathers, they may be cohabiting, within five years, they are going to become single dads to a mother and child. They're going to have child support obligations that they cannot meet, and the same challenges that African-American fathers have experienced for decades will be present in the population. And if you read my book, Failing Our Fathers, there is we talk about this in... Um, in a, uh, um, in, uh, I forget, um, there is a county in upstate New York. All I can remember, remember, it is Lucille Ball's hometown. Uh, and in Lucille Ball's, Ball's hometown, it is a area that used to be the manufacturing, the paper products manufacturing capital of the world right? Uh, we produced our paper for Xerox and our, uh, and our um, fiberboard wood in that town. And then when the market changed and we created other places around the world where we produce wood-related wood products, um, most of the children, the adult male children of the fathers who had high-paying jobs in that town are now working as pool boys in the resorts in that town. And they look very much like the inner city African-American men that are described in so many accounts. They are low-wage men with criminal justice problems, substance abuse problems, and they read just like Bill Wilson's um, The Truly Disadvantaged. And they have high child support obligations on and on and on and on and on. This is happening all across the United States. And so within a decade or so, the, the things that we used to call the inner city condition of marginalized men, we're going to see many more white men in that circumstance. And we will, um, because we see it in the substance abuse area, and my belief is we will see it in this area as well. There will be fathers detached from their families with child support obligations they cannot afford to pay. And then public, public it will become a national, whatever it is, family crisis. And yeah. then we'll try to, try to fix that family crisis in the same way we tried to deal with the healthcare crisis. Uh, and I, love I wish I had another 20 years to be at this because I'd be in serious business, but you do. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. And I think what I love what you brought up was the, the job market. And I think the one thing that has, has failed us um, tremendously is that we, we don't prepare people for the jobs of the future. We do, that we do not. We do not. No, and increasingly, we, those jobs of the future will require higher education. Uh, and, and, and uh, you know, we're, we're thinking about, man, 
so you know i i don't want to be i I, i'm just going to tell the truth um when um when i was had the privilege of working at the ford foundation and at the urban institute uh and and i got ruined when i went into academia because not everybody had a staff assistant right early in my career i always had a staff assistant and they would uh, and my favorite one she would uh she gave me a card for my my birthday and it pictured an executive walking out of the office and his staff assistant handed him his head, right? Yeah. Right right now, if I forget an appointment, I will say, Alexa, remind me to get on the meeting uh, this afternoon, right? So those kinds of jobs are being replaced by artificial intelligence. You know, we have Teslas. Pretty soon you won't even be able to drive. I'll get in, hop, if I want to go to class, I'll hop in the Uber, Uber or whatever, an AI Uber. Tesla Uber will drive me to my office and come back and there won't be a worker in there. That is that may happen by the time my grandson is an adult. Right. So um, increasingly, we are going to have to make sure that in order to have a decent paying job, we have access to higher education. Uh, for black folk, what does that mean? We have to deal with their literacy. We have to deal with their math skills. And the readiness for all of that happens when children are young. That's why we need to get more fathers involved in preparing the literacy for their children, whether or not they're living with them. And there, there are lots of things that men can do to increase the literacy skills of their children. And if children um, learn to read by the time they're three years old, by the time they enter elementary school, they will then be able to read to learn. If they don't, then they're going to be stuck in this, these lower tier uh, educational tracks, these lower tier um, educational tracks. And as a consequence, they will they will not have the jobs of the future that are going to pay well. Right. And so I think, again, that's part of the infrastructure. We think about parenting programs. We need to get more men involved in those programs because, face it, welfare reform has disappeared. Right. Yeah. It's gone. Right. right. Uh, to, sadly, um, mothers today are required to work as my mother chose to do and right. years ago, right? That means that there are many women who get up in the morning, dress their kids, uh, make sure their kids go to childcare, they go to work. What's happening to the fathers? Whether they can go to their jobs and do whatever they do if they have them. If they don't, they can be reading, they can be taking their kids to school, they can be involved in the Head Start programs, and we need to create an infrastructure to train them to do that. And so, again, the, the beat goes on. And and that's true. That's true. And this has been an amazing conversation. Uh, before we end this conversation, what does it mean to be a father to you? Oh my God! Um, the, it it means reproducing myself. Uh, it means the in the scriptures the word father means source. And I I have had the privilege of seeing my two sons grow up as infants to become full flown men who are contributing to their families, who are raising their children. My my oldest son is a single dad. He's the best father I've ever seen. He's the one who taught me that when you deal with a young child, you know, I'm six foot four, right? And I talk to my grandsons from here to here. He was the one who taught me to lean down and look in her eyes, right? And so I have seen, um, I've seen myself recreated, right? Uh, what adult doesn't want that? And, and now I'm going into the third generation. I get the pure joy of hanging out with my grandson, watching his development, be, being the go-to child care provider. I mean, I'm living, it's like I am blessed. 
I'm blessed in the morning. I'm blessed in the evening. I'm waiting for my kids to come back. One of them lives in Africa. The other one lives in, we're going to get together and do our thing. And I'm going to celebrate my grandchildren. Uh, I'm living the dream, but that's not good enough. I want more men of color to be able to live the dream. Uh, and, and that's what my life's work has been about. And you're doing, uh, thank you. Thank you for all the work you've done and keep on doing. What advice do you have for the, the future movers and shakers in this in this world that's basically going to be um, taking the man to? You know, I, the advice that I have is that, you know, be on mission. You know, you have to make a living. You have to uh, you have to make a name for yourself. One of the things that I'm curious about this uh, this this uh, this your cohort is that you all have to have a brand. It's very interesting. Um, but you know, again, to him, too much is given, much is expected, right? You have a contribution to make. You know, because of who you are, more about what these circumstances are than lots of people who are, when I was coming up through public policy, I was the only black person around most policy tables at which I sat, right? And so, but the point is, you know, you have to use your expertise to give that away and don't let your ego get it. More nonprofit organizations fail to get the job done because the contribution that the people with expertise and opportunity have to make, uh, they get, um, uh, there's there's a shaving. Uh, 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 something has to come off of it to feed their egos. And as a consequence, a lot of good and important work doesn't get done because our needs, our, our egos need to be fed. You know, you if you are privileged to have a passion, to have a gift and you have an opportunity, give that sucker away. And, and the legacy that you will earn as a consequence of that will be more than enough to feed your ego when you retire Right, you go off to the pasture, and all you have to do is look back at it and ask yourself, "What have I done? What have I contributed to the planet?" Okay, if somebody recognizes you in the newspaper today, that'll be that'll line tomorrow's uh, garbage cans, right? But you will know when you contribute to building something, you will you will know the contribution that you make. And by the way, when you're when you're out on the beach or whatever it is, that'll be the contribution to your ego that you'll need after everybody's forgotten about you. That's powerful. Dr. Mincy, thank you. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. This was a great conversation. I, I, I definitely want you back on because, like, again, off offline, I can talk to you for three, four hours because you have so much wisdom and so much knowledge and, and your willingness to share. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for the work that you do. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. And we're out. Peace. Bye-bye now. Oops, let me... So for you, yeah, yo There will never it matters and even more when you feel like it doesn't Protect you so you never feel like you wasn't Know I'm right alongside you, here but that I'm behind you But always got you, end of discussion, nothing means more First wanna offer his shoulders for what you preach for Thought I saw the eyes of the world until I seen yours And know that I ain't see a better view yet I'm with whatever, so don't ever you fret Know that you covered, not a hurdle or a heartbreak To change what a partake Cause none of them won't ever get comfortable in your walkway My job is to aware you, fully loaded, prepare you For all of the above that I'm never letting get near you But still in all, give you every advantage I found Couldn't find a better fit for them, along with my crown And since the baton was passed, hopping down Cause failing's not an option, and dad is not a noun, not at all 
my message to any dad, man, first off, know that, yeah, it, it is a hard job, but it's the greatest job in the world. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I wouldn't change anything about it. Everything you're doing from here on out, if it didn't have purpose before, now it has purpose. It's the most important thing you'll ever do. Just be a dad.